0: Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller and you're listening to the Real Life LA Podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder.
1: Good morning, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Real Life, and it's so good to be with you guys this morning. We've been in this sermon series called Without Question, where we've been looking at difficult questions that people bring up in terms of the church and faith and religion, and today we're gonna be continuing in that series. Over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Jim has been walking us through what does the church and faith say about uh, suffering and evolution and lots of different topics, and today is gonna be no exception, and I'm excited to hit today's topic with you. But before we dive in, I actually just want to highlight tonight's Halloween party. I know Pastor Jim came up and talked a little bit about that, but we're really, really excited about tonight. This is a chance for us to open up the doors and to fling wide the doors so that people can come and see what this church is all about. And so I really hope that you will encourage people to join you tonight. I'm personally excited for the fifth through eighth grade dodgeball tournament that's happening over at Rock and Jump. So that's gonna be where I'll be tonight. Uh, and it's gonna be amazing, hopefully at No Broken Bones. Uh, and it's gonna be an awesome time, lots of sugar. We're gonna be amped up. And we're excited about that as a church. So hopefully you'll consider inviting someone to come and join you tonight. But take a look at the video because I hope that you don't do it like this.
0: Trigger tree. <laughs> Hey, it's us, Hi. your neighbors from six doors down, Jim and Joanna Sanders. Hi. Don't let the costumes fool you because we're serious when we say trick or treat. So which route do you want to take? Because the devil wants to trick you, but the good Lord wants to treat you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like a regular haunted house in here with that door slamming like that. Oh, see what you did there? I did. I used a metaphor of the season. Yeah. That's what I did. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me try a different approach. Yeah. I see that your yard is decorated with a whole bunch of stuff for uh, Satan's night like most of the heathens. Do, All right, I meant Halloween, like most of the heathens do, but how about we tell you about a different alternative this holiday season? Yeah, see, our church is having something that is so much better and safer than going door-to-door. We would like to invite you to our third annual Holy, Holy Ghost, Ghost Weenie Roast! because <laughs> I'm the Holy Ghost, and, and he's a weenie to roast. Oh, that roast! My wife, a regular Jay-Z. Whoa, 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 whoa. danger, Will Robinson. What we're trying to say is here, we just want to invite you to our church for a little bit of food, a little bit of fun, some games, and some music. What do you say? Huh? Will there be candy? Yeah, candy.
1: Yeah, there'll yeah, be candy. and want some candy. So much. It's like a
0: regular <laughs> Willy Wonka factory over there. No, yeah, oh, the first movie, not the second. Good point, good point. Can I wear my witch costume? Ah. Uh, uh, there'll be candy. Plus down for a definite maybe. OK, Yay! I like that. That's what I want to hear. No, now listen, Yogi and Boo Boo, I need to ask you a personal question.
1: Mom and Dad tells us not to talk to strangers?
0: Duly noted, duly noted. And work on your sales pitch, it's a little offensive. Now just a
1: minute, we will work really hard. It's so probably not the best way to invite people, but I really like that video because it just reminded me about how awkward the church can be when it comes to Halloween. Like, let's just be honest. The church is super awkward when it comes to Halloween season. Um, you know, it's a time when everyone's talking about scary, creepy, like underworld-related kind of things. And sometimes as the church, we don't know what to do with that, right? We don't know how to handle the Halloween holiday. I was uh, actually reading the other day about some of the origins of Halloween, and Halloween dates way, way, way back to a time period when they would use the day of October 31st. It was actually kind of this old Celtic ideology that this was a day in which the dimensions of heaven and earth become sort of palliable. They, They begin to sort of fade away, and so people that have passed on can come back to interact with people who are currently living on earth. And this idea of kind of spirits roaming around us on October 31st is something that way back when people were very much aware of. So they called this All Hallows' Eve or Summer's End. And so by the 11th century, the church was actually sending kids out into the neighborhoods and people could exchange a prayer for a loved one that's passed on in exchange for what they called a soul cake. And that was sort of the early form of trick-or-treating. And of course, the rest is history all the way up to 2019. And this week, thousands of kids are going to be dressed in costumes, some of them great, some of them ridiculous, some of them absurd, going house to house asking for candy. If any of you have Sour Patch Kids or uh, Reese's Cups left over, I will gladly take those next week so you can just bring in all of your Sour Patch. I would love to have that. Are you guys alive out there? Gosh, okay, so, right, so when we think of Halloween, we think of Halloween, we often think of trick-or-treating and door-to-door, but, you know, the church doesn't know what to do with that. We get a little awkward. We don't know what to do with the creepy things like ghosts and wizards and zombies and all that kind of stuff. And so today's topic is going to make you and me squirm a little bit. We're going to have to wrestle with something a little bit tough. Today's topic is, what the hell would a good God send people there, right? Right? Great topic to think about on a Sunday morning. On July 8th, 1741, the American revivalist pastor, Jonathan Edwards, actually delivered this amazing sermon that that has been put down in the history books. In fact, if you're in high school, you may have had to have read this recently. It's a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this was a kind of a hellfire and brimstone sort of sermon where he sort of delivered out this, uh, this ideology of, you know, the, the crazy and vivid imagery of hell being a place that you don't want to go. In fact, he even talks about hell being a place where you would dangle a spider over the fire for all of eternity, watching it suffer in horrific death, right? But actually never dying. And so this idea of hell has often by the church been propagated as an idea of a place that you want to stay away from. And this morning, I imagine that for many of you, as you woke up and contemplated the idea of coming to church, the one thing you probably wanted to talk about this morning was hell. I know all of you were like, I can't wait to get to church. Talk about hell, right? It's going to be an amazing morning. Well, when Pastor Jim asked me to preach today, I said, sure, great. Great. Count me in, that's fine. He said, okay, what about hell? I said, oh. So my face was like that emoji with the big eyes. Like, that was my response. That was what I felt when Pastor Jim was like, Talk about hell. But you know, here's, here's the thing you can't often tell your pastor, your boss, that you're going to pass, right? After he just asked you to do something. So I started to tackle this, this topic of what is hell? Would God send us there? And it's a really fascinating topic because it's something that people are asking all over the world. Chances are you've had friends and family workers and coworkers that have asked you your views on what hell is like, if, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. So if you have a Bible or your Bible app, uh, I encourage you to, to bring that out. Uh, we're going to be looking uh, today, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three. So that's where you can turn to. But we're going to be covering quite a few different passages of Scripture. We're going to look at a few different ways that Jesus talks about hell, and then we're going to relate that back to us here today in 2019. Uh, but while you're turning, I, I really want you to think about this. You know, do you believe in hell? We put that out on the app today, on the Real Life app, and at 10.30 a.m., 82% of the congregation had responded, yes, I believe in hell. 7% of the congregation responded, no, I don't believe in hell, and 11% said, maybe. This is fascinating, right, that many people, many people in the church today, right, a solid 80% even here at Real Life, believe in the concept of hell, it's crazy to think about, and that's what we're going to look at today as we turn into Matthew 3. But as before we hit Matthew 3, I just want to briefly mention that this is a difficult topic for the church. It really is. Romans eleven twenty two. Paul says, Note the kindness and the severity of God. See, when we look at God, there's two different kinds of views we have here. We have the kindness of God, and we have the severity of God. And the church does a great job of showing the kindness of God. When you come to church on Sunday, you like hearing sermons about love and grace and kindness and forgiveness and the stuff that makes you feel good. When you leave here, you know that you follow a God who loves you. That's easy for us to think about. But then when we think about the other side, the severity and the wrath of God, a lot of times we start to squirm. We start to wiggle, right? Uh, Topics on hell, sermons on hell are not all that popular in churches today. And there's a reason for that, because people don't want to hear sermons that tell you to turn or burn. We don't like those kind of images of God being a wrathful God. And so today we're going to cover something very difficult. But I want us to think about it in terms of kind of like when you teach your kids to go to stay away from the swimming pool because it's unsafe without an adult present. Or to stay away from the road because cars were coming and they could potentially get hurt Right, That's the same idea that that we sometimes have to look at difficult topics that show us boundaries around God, that show boundaries around the world that God says that we need to fall into within the order of the universe around us. And thinking about the order of the universe, we have to think about the church as sort of like an ecosystem. So if you know anything about biology, an ecosystem has lots of moving parts. And there's usually some sort of predator that then keeps the population at bay. And when we take away the predator then overpopulation starts to happen, and the ecosystem completely falls into disarray. In the same way, in the church, when we take away the bad and the predatory sort of thoughts, all the evil things that we don't want to cover, if we remove that from the church's ecosystem, it can actually disrupt the whole balance that's there. In the same way, today, when we look at the doctrines of hell and God's judgment, we simply can't ignore them. We have to put them in front of us, and we have to look at them. We have to see what God's has to say about those two things. So before we turn to Matthew chapter 3, let's pray as we prepare to open up God's word this morning. Lord God Almighty, as we open up your word today, may we gratefully receive it, may we clearly understand it, and may we faithfully apply it to our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 John the Baptist talking John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus and he's about to announce the fact that the Messiah is coming and he's been out there baptizing people in preparation for Jesus and here's what he has to say I baptize you with water for repentance but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire." Now, I want to stop there because he uses a lot of imagery that we're not familiar with in 2019, particularly for those of us who live in the concrete jungle of a major metropolis. He's talking about a winnowing fork and a threshing floor and all these sort of farm imagery. This would have been the stuff that his audience would have recognized in the first century. Think about it. They were all farmers. They worked on the land. They understood the concept Jesus was talking about. I grew up in rural North Carolina myself. When you think of North Carolina, I'm sure you come to thoughts of sort of green trees and rolling hills and lots of pasture, and that's where I grew up. I grew up on like a 1,000 acres of land with pine trees, and we used to go riding four-wheelers out, and we had, you know, uh, cows and chickens and goats. And so, you know, I'm, I'm an expert when it comes to all things farming. I don't know if you guys know this, but I really, I know everything farming, Right? Just kidding. I, I actually know nothing about farming. I live in LA for a reason because I did not like the farm. But the farm actually has a, has a really important part of society. And so when we think of wheat, which we all eat on a daily basis, if you eat your Wheaties in the morning, you're eating wheat. When farmers bring in wheat from their, from their land, they actually bring it into this kind of you know, barn or wherever they're going to separate the, the edible wheat from the husk. So they bring it in and they put it on what's called a threshing floor, right? I had to Google this this week to figure out what a threshing floor was. They bring in the wheat and then they bring in the oxen and the oxen like stamp around on the wheat until the good wheat falls down and the shaft, right, the husk, the kind of the the shell around it, basically is left behind. And so the farmers go in with a winnowing fork and they begin to kind of stoke it and it continues to separate and the, the shaft starts to fly up into the air. And then they sort of separate that out, they take it outside and they burn it. Right? They take the good wheat that you can eat and they put it in the barn and then they separate what's left over to be burned. And when we look at, at this idea of John the Baptist proclaiming this to be something that Jesus is going to do, what he's saying is that Jesus is gonna separate two types of people. He's going to separate those who are righteous and then those who are sinful. There's a, there's a separation. There's, a, there's an idea that there's two groups of people out in the world, and Jesus is coming to create a divide between those two, those who are for him and those who are not. And so that has to be our image as we think about this idea of hell today as a separation between good and evil. In the Bible, anytime the word Gehenna is used, it's an indication for the the place of hell. So when Jesus talks about hell or references hell or mentions hell, he's using the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a place in southern Jerusalem that was essentially the trash dump of the city. Uh, Back in the old days, before it became a trash dump, it was a place that essentially was kind of like the Blair Witch Murders or the Salem Witch Trials, happened down in Gehenna, lots of murders and very mysterious things and witchcraft and evil. And so the Jews disregarded this place as a place of complete evil, and so they turned it into a trash dump. So the Jews would take take their trash down to Gehenna, and they would begin to build up and build up and build up. They'd have to burn it, and then it would build up further, and they would burn it, and so it became this cycle of trash burning. So whenever Jesus is talking about hell, he's actually referencing a physical place that people knew, that people could see, that people avoided and did not want to go to because it was constantly on fire and smoldering. It was the place that you told your kids not to go play and to stay away from at all costs. This idea of Gehenna is important as we think about hell, So as we turn now to Matthew 25, we're going to flip gears just a little bit. Now we're going to actually fast forward in the picture. Jesus has come, and Jesus has been preaching all over the place, and he's going to say something that's important for us today. Matthew 25, verse 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now I want to stop there. He says eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels, right? He doesn't say us. His intention was never to send human beings to hell. The hell was created as a separation from God because of the fall of the devil himself. So that's important for us to think about. We continue. Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. The separation is happening, right? I'll never forget the first time that I was invited to go on a mission trip. Who's ever been on a mission trip in the room? Raise your hand if you've been. Okay, so quite a few of you, right? So if you go on a mission trip, these can be very difficult things to go on. A lot of times because they really stretch us and take us out of our comfort zone. So now I was in 10th grade, I was invited by my youth pastor to go on a mission trip. And I'd been on lots of summer camps and retreats and been on beach trips and all sorts of things. And those were fun. And so I just assumed that this was going to be like another fun trip that we went on. And it was a lot of fun. But when we arrived in Raleigh, North Carolina, we came to this school and our our youth pastor was like, all right, let's unload. And we're like, what do you mean? He's like, we're sleeping on the floor of this school. And I was like, what? We're sleeping on the floor of a science classroom. And for an entire week, we put up our air mattresses and we slept on the floor of a school. And that was tough right? We ended up having to like shower out in these portable showers in the parking lot. It was a different experience than what I expected. And so one one morning, we get up on the first mornings of the trip, and and they say, all right, we're going to take you guys into inner city Raleigh. You're going to go into some areas that you've never been to before. I started thinking, gosh, did my mom know what she was signing me up for, you know, when she signed me up for this trip? And uh, so we, we start driving into some, in some areas that were very poor, very sort of dilapidated, and, and we come up to a house. They said, this is your project for the week. I said, okay, what are we doing? She said, this, this lady, this lady was on the front porch. She didn't have air conditioning. She couldn't afford that. It was the middle of summer. Remember, this is like July, North Carolina, hot, humid, sticky, terrible. So it was actually warmer or cooler outside than it was inside of her house. And so this lady was in a wheelchair. She was very elderly and she couldn't afford to fix her roof. It had been leaking for years. And so they said, hey, you guys are gonna fix the roof. I was like, we are like, I, I hope you realize who, you're, who you just got to do this. It's a 10th grade Kevin, right? 10th grade Kevin does not know how to roof a house, right? I don't, still don't even know how to roof a house. I've did it for a week. But for that week, we got up on the roof and we put up, we put up shingles and we replaced the roof and somehow it, it worked with all these 10th grade kids that were up on this roof. And that was an amazing experience because it taught me something about serving other people. See, when we're called to follow Jesus, we're called to a life that focuses not on ourselves, but on others. Not on what we want, but what others need. And for me, since that day, I've tried to live on mission every single day. I love mission trips, and I always encourage our students to go on them because they're so impactful. We as a church, I believe we as a church are really good about being on mission. We've built houses down in Mexico. We're sending Christmas gifts down to, uh, down to children in, in needy areas of Mexico this Christmas. Here at Real Life, I watched this past week, our prayer team pray over a man who's been sober for over 40 days, a man with severe drug addiction. And over in the living room, right over here, we got to pray over this man. And this is not something that I'm super comfortable with myself. I'm a pastor, and sometimes I struggle with this idea of praying for people who are in times of need, when Pastor Jim talks about supernatural things, I squirm a little bit too because it doesn't come natural to me. I didn't grow up in the tradition that was, that was big into talking about supernatural things. But when we look at God, God is up to some big things here and in the universe and across his domains. And so the other day in the living room, praying over a man who's been sober for 40 days, he was, he was weeping and crying and he said, I need a reminder of God's grace in my life. And so together with the prayer team, we got a little bowl of water and we baptized him just in the living room, some sprinkling of water. Said, so let this be a reminder that God's, God's grace washes over you like water, cleanses you, makes you new, makes you whole again. And may when you leave these doors, may you always remember the God that loves you. We invited him back to get dunked to get the full effect later on. So hopefully we see him back but in that same meeting, we prayed with a woman who has turned away from evil and and praying towards evil spirits, weeping and crying and saying, I'm so overwhelmed by the love of God. You see, if we as a church are not going out into our communities and overwhelming people with the overwhelming love of God, then what is our purpose? What is our mission? That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to live now He calls us to live for him today. You see, when Jesus says, depart from me in Matthew 25, what he's saying is, he's saying, you know all that stuff you have? You know all of your possessions, you know all of your belongings, you know all of those things that you have and and you've, you've earned? Well, actually, they're not yours. They're mine. What Jesus is saying, all that you have, it doesn't belong to you. It actually belongs to me and I've allowed you to have it as a blessing in your life. And when we take our possessions and we take our things and we take our belongings and we treat them as if we've earned them ourselves like our like they are ours and only ours then we actually belittle and mock the name of Jesus who gives us good gifts for his honor and for his glory. And that's important because the call of this passage in Matthew 25 is not hey go out and help your neighbor. It's actually hey all of your life and all of your possessions belong to Jesus, and God has bestowed upon you this ability to be a blessing to others as a reflection of God's love in a dark, broken, and sinful world. And for those who actually say, you know what, forget it. I don't need that. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to reject Jesus' grace. Then Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And the destination is, according to the Bible, eternal fire. Who's seen the uh, old 1930s movie Frankenstein? You may have seen Frankenstein. Okay, some of you Of you, Uh, it's actually based on the novel by Mary Shelley, and this 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 story about a man named Victor Frankenstein who creates a, a hideous monster in his laboratory, and the monster is about eight foot tall and it's really ugly and tries to go out and engage in society, but people end up trying to kill the monster because it's so ugly, and the monster can't figure out why he's you know being attacked, and so he ends up running off and finds his way to a cabin. When he gets to the cabin, he encounters a mirror. And as he stands in front of the mirror, he sees this reflection for the first time and is horrified because he didn't realize that he actually was horrific looking, that he was actually hideous, that people turned from him in fear. He himself was fearful and he ends up shattering the mirror in disgust as his horror turns to anger. When you look into the mirror, who do you see? Who do you see? Not who does everyone else see? but who are you to the God of the creator of the universe who made you, who formed you? You see, when we look into the mirror, a lot of times we see broken, sinful, messy lives. And today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you that as you look into the mirror, that you are held in the promises of our Lord. You are held by the grace of God. And every time you look in the mirror and maybe you've had a bad day, Maybe you don't see beauty. Maybe you doubt the person that you see in the mirror. I want to challenge you to remember that you follow a God who's made you beautiful. And he wants to give you good gifts. And he wants you to reflect his love in a dark world. But if you're sitting here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't made that step of faith to say, I'm going to completely turn my life over to God, what is stopping you? Because when we, when we say no to Jesus, when we reject his grace, what we are essentially doing is remaining enslaved to the sinfulness that we see in the mirror. Romans 1.21, here's what Paul says. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools." There's a lot of people out in the world. How many people do you know that claim to be wise? They claim to know more than God. There's a lot of people out in the world today who say, I don't need God. I'm gonna, I, I only need to follow myself. And they claim to be wise, but they're eventually going to be made to be fools. Verse 23, because they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of the earth. That's what people do when they reject Jesus. They exchange God's image for their own. If you're here today and you've never trusted God, I encourage you to consider what it might look like to let yourself be free of the enslaving sin that you see in the mirror every day. Because when we turn our lives over to Jesus, he gives us newness of life and forgiveness that we can never, ever lose. In The Great Divorce, Christian writer C.S. Lewis talks about heaven and hell like this. He says that once uh, there was a busload of, of sinners and people that had ended up in hell because they had been enslaved to their sin, and so they remained isolated from God in hell. They were brought to the outskirts of heaven, and as they began to see the divide between the righteous and the unrighteous, they realized that they were people who had rejected the Messiah, Jesus. C.S. Lewis describes people who are in hell as people who are self-medicated, people who are addicted, people who struggle with sin in their life, people who've hurt other people. There's one thing that unites people in hell together. It's this idea that they have rejected God's grace, but ultimately never took responsibility for their actions or decisions in life. And so for Lewis, he describes hell like this. He says it's the greatest monument to human freedom. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. When we choose to live for ourselves, be free of anything God wants us to have in exchange for our own pleasures, our own desires, our own satisfaction. God is not a God who inflicts punishment upon disobedient people. God actually wants us to follow him and he gives us a choice. We can choose to follow God or we can walk away. It's as simple as that. I was recently down in Skid Row, if, down in downtown L.A. I had a friend in town, and, and uh, they said, you know, hey, I'd, I'd love to see Skid Row. I was like, I don't know why he wants to see Skid Row, but we went down to Skid Row, and so we drove through it, and it was, it was very interesting to me, and I've been to the Tenderloin and San Francisco and Skid Row, very similar, but I've been in a lot of different places in the world, but Skid Row is interesting. Skid Row in downtown L.A. is a place where the homeless will often find themselves. It's a place of brokenness and the marginalized. And Skid Row is this idea of a place for people who are on the outskirts of society. And a lot of people find themselves in Skid Row because they're only just one paycheck away from homelessness sometimes. I mean, some people aren't aware of the circumstances that bring them into homelessness. But as I was going through Skid Row, it was, it was really quite horrific. There were tents lining the streets people that had made their homes in intense and dilapidated cardboard boxes. There was a man defecating on the street. There were drug dealers passing out drugs and baggies and needles. It was a terrible image of people that have found themselves on skid row, living on the streets of downtown LA. And I thought about that for a second, because as much as some of those individuals may not have been able to control the circumstances that brought them there, They may not have been able to control the context that allowed them to enter Skid Row. Every single person on Skid Row has the ability to walk away. They can simply leave the area. They can find help with an agency. There There are resources out and available for people that are on the streets and who are homeless. See, regardless of how people arrived, they all have the option of leaving Skid Row. And I like how Tim Keller calls hell the freely chosen eternal skid row of the universe. Hell is not a place where a loving God sends bad people. It's a place that people choose to go when they choose a life of enslavement over a life with Jesus. I was recently talking to a high school student. I get to work with a lot of high school students here at Real Life. And this student said, Kevin, I just, a good God would not send someone to hell. And I said, why? Why? He said, well, it's not in God's character. It's not in God's character that he would send someone to hell. And here's what this student was saying. What he was saying is that if if hell exists because people fail to see God's grace in their life, if hell exists because people reject God in their life, then we, in our response to hell, cannot be for our own safety to further belittle God's name by saying it's not in his character to send us to hell. See, we're basically passing the blame. What the student was saying was that, I don't think that the punishment fits the crime. I don't think that God would allow this to happen because God's name is not a big deal. And that's what so many people are doing when they claim that a good God would not send people to hell. So I asked the question, I said, is God not justified in allowing someone to enter hell? And there was no response because hell is not an issue of God's love. Hell is is an issue of God's justice. Loving God does not send people to hell. It's something that we accept ourselves. I'm gonna invite the band to come up as we close this morning, but I just want to, put together this idea. When I was a kid, I used to, I used to do what a lot of older brothers do. Uh, if you're an older sibling in the room, you might resonate with this, but I used to make my brother's life quite terrible. Um, I, that was my job as an older brother. Um, one time I, I had him eat a fruit roll-up wrapper just because I wanted to see what would happen. My mom got really, really mad at that. And I feel really terrible about that today. So I'm sorry, Eric, if you're listening to the podcast that I made you eat a fruit roll-up wrapper as a kid. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't the worst of it. Actually, the worst of it was when I was a senior in high school. My family went on a cruise to the Caribbean and I was kind of, you know, the last Christmas together in high school and all that kind of stuff. So it was New Year's Eve and, you know, what do people do on New Year's Eve? They go out and party and enjoy the new year and celebrate the coming year. And, and so I was out on this boat and my parents said, we're gonna go to dinner. Your job is to babysit your middle school brother. So here I was, I was like, great. That sounds amazing. Just what I wanted to do on New Year's Eve was babysit my middle school brother. So my parents go off to dinner and I was like, I got to get rid of him, right? I got to get rid of my brother. So I said, Eric, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're adopted, right? And he was like, he was probably 12, I don't don't know, 11, 12. He was mortified. (laughs) He was like, what? And like goes screaming, crying, right? I really didn't quite expect that, but I was like, oh, that, that worked. <laughs> He's now gone. So I went off, you know, to, to have a good time with, you know, other friends that I had made on the boat. Well, my brother goes and finds my parents, who then interrupts their dinner and says, Kevin says I was adopted. and was crying, and it was really traumatic, and I'm so sorry. Once again, I know I'm a terrible person <laughs> that I would do <laughs> such a thing, but I know I'm not the only one. Anyway, so <laughs> my brother goes, and he, basically I ruined the whole evening, And my parents come back and they're like, Kevin, what were you thinking, right? You just ruined this kid's New Year's Eve and you ruined our dinner. So you're gonna go and have to be grounded for the week. And we're on vacation, right? So I'm like, what? No, no, that's not a thing. (laughs) And they were like, no, you're you're going to bed. This is 10 o'clock at night. They're like, you're going to bed. Uh, We don't care, You're, you're in trouble. And I was like, you can't do this. I'm almost 18, about to go up to college. Like, you can't punish me. And they're like, you wanna bet? So I went to bed at 10 o'clock that night. The only New Year's that I've never been awake for was when I told my brother that he was adopted. So I'm sorry for that. But you know what made me think of this is how mad I was at my parents that they would punish me for doing something like that. Because I didn't think it was justified. But here's the deal. When we as the church go out into the world, a lot of times we encounter people who do the exact same thing, right? They, they have a life that's, that's sinful and broken and, and embraces their own self and evil. And yet they want to pass the blame for their, for their punishment. It's an eternal separation from God back onto God himself, right? We live in a society in the postmodern world that says that we can believe whatever we want, that truth is, is objective. We can, we can think of truth however we want. Right? We can, we can pass the blame to someone else. It's completely normalized in our society today. Or maybe we just make it sound absurd that authority figures would punish us for something in our life. But all of us have free will. All of us have the ability to choose God or to turn away from God. And we can either we can either you know, give up, we can go for anarchy, or we can go for hope. And this morning I challenge you to go for hope. To hope for something better because God doesn't force his love upon you. God made you, he created you, and he loves you, and he wants you to love him. He wants you to accept his grace and mercy in your life, and many of you here have done that, but he doesn't send us to hell for choosing to reject him. The action is not actually on God. The action is on us, because our sin is what condemns us, and I guarantee you, I'd be willing to bet that God mourns when someone goes to hell because he simply said, come and follow me. And so today, let us follow Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and go out into a world and tell others to do the same. See, the church often goes out and tells people about God in this idea of FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. We shouldn't live our life. We shouldn't turn to Jesus because we're in fear of missing out on heaven or or in fear of going to hell. Jesus wants to give you life and life abundant today. And so what would it look like for you to walk out today and to share the the love and the grace and the life that God gives you with a dark and sinful world? And so I hope that we as a church will go do that today, that we will fling wide our doors and say, you know what? There's a good God that loves us and has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And he wants you to live right now, today, tomorrow, and forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit Reallife.LA and tap Give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.